welcome to the March 2011 episode, podcast, uh, talking time, conversation, whatever you want to call it, of Ordinary Means. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here with Matt Bowling. He's here. I promise he's here. Matt? I just, I'm sorry. I was sipping coffee. <laughs> I live in Seattle. You caught me at the wrong time. It's, Hi. People in Seattle, are you drinking Seattle's Best? I am not. I'm actually drinking a wonderful cup of coffee, shameless plug, Rogers Family Coffee from uh, the Bay Area, sold at Costco for under $4.50 a pound, and it's exceptional coffee. Oh, lovely. Shameless plug. Shameless plug. What do we have now here? It's I guess Pittsburgh is Mayorga, is our local. Uh, Mayorga, yeah. 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 It actually looks like Pittsburgh today in Seattle. I'm looking out my office window at snow, which is... Oh, well, there's probably only been three times this has happened in the three years I've lived in Seattle. So, uh, anyways, we have a snow wow. day today. So, anyhow, it's nice. It's pretty. Well, I was going to say Good it kind memories. of looks like Seattle here in Pittsburgh. It's overcast. <laughs> <laughs> what happens well, when you, you have not realized it yet? Sean and I used to live about an hour apart, and we used to do this live and in person in his office. And then... Uh, God's providence uh, led us to living on two different coasts, and so we do this uh, somewhat electronically. We're going to start calling this Ordinary Means Coast to Coast. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine if we laugh. did this back when... Ribs. You can't make me laugh. I have bruised ribs. Okay? Oh. Actually, it's not hurting when I laugh today. It's good. It is good. Yeah. So are, are we going to... Um... I guess we should do a podcast. I was thinking you think said so? you said we lived about an hour apart, but see, I remember when we lived together oh. during seminary. Can you imagine this podcast then? It would have been scary. Yes, it would have. Okay. Well, hey, let's um, let's do a podcast. Uh, this is part. I believe this is part four, and I believe this is the final part in a in a four part series. We've been asking uh, ten questions, but as you you see. You'll see by the end of the podcast, we're up to about a dozen. Um, we might even make a baker's dozen by the time we're done here. Um, ten questions to check whether we are really gospel-centered or how gospel-centered we really are. And we've been asking, really what we've been asking is the whole council question. That is, is uh, our preaching, is the preaching in the churches we attend is the work of those who are going by the label uh, gospel-centered or cross-centered or Christ-centered today, is it really gospel-centered, Christ-centered, cross-centered? Um, and so we've been asking, we have this set of questions, and let me just, in case you missed some of the earlier ones, uh, let me just remind you what some of those questions are, and maybe some of them will spark your interest and send you back to a previous podcast. As well as I want to add... Um, that podcast detention if you're sent back? <laughs> that's podcast detention. You have to go to the podcast principal. You have to sit outside the podcast principal's office uh, for a good 15, 20 minutes until you're really feeling ashamed, and then they'll bring you in. That's a very gospel-centered way of thinking about it. It is it's very gospel-centered. Um, that's the, uh, the principal, principal Pharisee. Um, if we uh, so if we go back, I, I wanted to add. I also wanted to add a couple quotes that I don't think we shared, but I think summarize some of the things that we've been talking about. So number one, our first question that we asked four months ago was: Is hell 
a part of your gospel. And um, I have a quote from D.A. Carson. I'm not sure if we read this or not. We may have read this. It's been four months. But D.A. Carson says this, um, uh, We've tried to contrast the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, with the God of the Old Testament, but the naked reality is that no one in the Bible is reported to talk as much about hell as Jesus. Yes, he weeps over Jerusalem, but his compassion does not prevent him from uttering the woes of Matthew 23. Uh, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost is an invitation to flee the corruption of the day. Uh, The fleeing is appropriate terminology precisely because, in line with the inherited theology of the Old Testament prophets, that corruption will surely bring judgment. Paul can describe the gospel he preaches as that which saves men and women from the coming wrath. And so then Carson goes on to explain then that the whole of the New Testament is filled with this idea of the gospel being that which saves us from the wrath of God. So if we're going to preach the gospel, are we also preaching the wrath of God so that people know what the gospel is? Um, Number two, we asked, is sin a part of your gospel that goes right along there? Is Are we personally responsible so that the wrath of God that's coming is the wrath of God due to us? Um, we're going to talk a little bit later in this podcast about how we sing the gospel. And um, something I've noticed is a lot of the Sovereign Grace songs— I think they get this idea of sin as a part of the gospel simply because they have so many songs. In fact, I'm, I, mm-hmm. I want to venture that 80% of Sovereign Grace songs are, Lord, why in the world did you pick me? Yeah. <laughs> so it gets that idea of I'm a sinner, I don't deserve the grace of the gospel. That, that's a good thing. Um, the third question we asked was, is the law a part of your gospel? And we, we quoted Luther. I, I think we've quoted Luther a number of times, so you can go back and listen to some of those earlier podcasts. Um, number four was, is repentance a part of your gospel? And I just have one little quote from a PCA pastor, and he said, he said this, he says, when we fail to preach the law, Instead, trying to save, instead, what we're doing is trying to save unregenerate sinners from the indignities of repentance. Yeah, that's a real danger. That we, we, yeah. we, we become, it's when the pastor becomes people pleaser. Mm-hmm. And that's a scary thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Considering I just, I'm just started preaching through Matthew and, um, it's very, very striking. Um, we, we call it here in, uh, in the nun zone where more people on religious surveys, uh, when they're picking a world religion, pick none than anywhere else on the country. <laughs> the nun country. Zone. Got it. That's a title mm. of a book, the nun zone. Um, in the nun zone here, we call it the R word. Um, and it is striking that both John the Baptist and Jesus come and the first things out of their mouth is the R word. Repent and believe. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, if, if our gospel doesn't use that word, um, we can be fairly sure, since it's a word also that Paul uses and God uses all the time all over the scriptures. And, and, and maybe it's not necessarily that word. Um, there are other, I think, uh, ways to say that. Um, but um, but it, there's a particular poignancy about that word, I guess, that I like. An edge to it. 
It, well, certainly it's, well, it's a biblical term, and I, I think um, John Frame grilled into us, use biblical terminology whenever, uh, whenever possible. Explain it. Explain our it. Yeah. Both, of, both of our mentor, Dave Eby, used to use a lot of theological words in his preaching, but he, he tried to, if it was a, a complex word, he'd explain it. And uh, I think that's a good way to do it. Keep using the words, but explain what they mean. Or you could go the R.C. Sproul route, which is you say the word, you say the complex theological term, and then you give two other words that mean the uh, same equally thing. Complex. E- <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> equally complex. Actually, John MacArthur does that very well in his preaching, um, is that he'll say one word and then he'll give a bunch of other words around it so you can kind of feel the flavor out, Yeah, which yep. is useful. That's the idea. Um, so is repentance part of our gospel? Number five, um, is grace so common it's assumed uh, this was the this was the idea of you know we're we've become so gospel centered and we talk about grace so much that when the when the word grace crosses our ears we don't perk up and and rejoice because we've heard the term so much we just assume god's grace belongs to us um, and, and this it's goes not back living to us anymore yeah it's not yeah and and this goes back to Luther where he, he says it effectively becomes a it effectively becomes a cheap grace. Mm. Um and you you get people in your congregation or who think because grace is talked about so much that that grace is thou is theirs, even though it might not be. Mm-hmm. Uh number six was is sanctification so uncommon it is assumed. Um, do we assume we're all holy? Um, do we assume even we're all we're not? Well, even though we're not, but yeah. you know, I think this this is the the lie of the Pharisee mm. the the assumption that we're holy and we don't want to be the Pharisee. Yeah. Um, Sean, have you have you used Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges yet in your ministry? That's a great little book. Yeah, I used it. We we have a lady uh, and a uh, wonderful, wonderful older lady in our congregation who does a Bible study with some of the other older ladies in the congregation, um, and that has been so life shaping for a lot of those ladies who never even considered that some of these things were sins. And um, I think when you're when you've got a consistent diet in the church of books like that, um, that are used. Um, that it's really, really helpful. And Bridges is so good in that book to always bring people back to the gospel, mm-hmm. uh, but not as a way of sort of salving their conscience, but of saying, you know, here's the only places for, for resources that you'll actually start fighting against some of these things that you never even thought were sins. Yeah. And um, is a, I highly recommend that as a good example. In my mind, that's a good example um, of a book that really deals pretty head-on with sin and repentance and what's at the heart of some of these respectable sins, but also is constantly bringing you back to Christ as your only hope. You know what? That book may be the... um, uh, Jack Miller has Repentance in the 20th Century Man, which was briefly republished as Repentance in the 21st Century Man, but it wasn't updated. (laughs) They just changed the title and right. it's it's a the book is a little bit dated. Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins, might be the the new replacement for that book. Oh, that's interesting. Certainly, for people who grew up, uh, we we're just talking. Uh, in a way, at a meeting last night in my house, and and uh, one of the ladies that was there made a comment, and I kind of probed her a little bit because they grew up very moral. 
you just didn't do bad things. And it was a, a leftover from, um, you know, sort of a Christian worldview and things like that. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't that they were real churchgoers or following Christ or anything like that. It was just, it was moral. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for people like me that grew up moral um, to, to, to think, boy, I'm a, sometimes I'm a very wicked sinner. And then you read a book like Respectable Sins and you go, I'm sinning multiple times a day. And for the last however many years that I've known Christ, I haven't even known it. Mm. And, um, and those are good books. That's 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 not uh, losing your gospel centered to realize that you're a very wicked sinner. In fact, it can make you more gospel centered because you realize how much you need Christ and how big grace actually is and that sort of thing. It, it can earn that big G on your gospel. Yeah, yeah. The um, uh, number so that was. That was number six. Mm-hmm. Uh, number seven related to it is being good a sin. Um, and this is the, you've got moral people in your church. You have virtuous people in your church and you assume they're Pharisees. Mm-hmm. Um, but is it possible that they've, they could just be disciplined Christians? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, which brings us to uh, number eight, which is where we pick up this month. And this is where we ask the question, uh, maybe a, a bit more related to the pastor. Um, but the question, do we adequately consider the goats? Now, this is a, this is a question that's been a big deal with the rise of the megachurch. Is what about all the non-Christians sitting in the congregation? Mm-hmm. Are you taking them into account? And then there's been there's been backlash against that, saying no, no, church is all about the Christian, um, and you know not about you know it's about church is about the sheep, not about the goats. So mm-hmm. we just need to preach to the sheep, and the goats can watch. Um, and so it, it sort of it goes back and forth, and then then you come back with what I think is a fairly balanced response when we say, well, no, no, the gospel is as much for the believer as it is for the unbeliever. Mm-hmm. Um, but do we get to a place where we're so preaching the gospel and we're so encouraging people to believe the gospel that they have believed that we forget how do you get to that gospel? How do you first come to understand that gospel? Th- this was something the Puritans were good at was mm-hmm. thinking through the process of conversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Puritans actually went perhaps too far in saying, I, I don't know, I, I go back and I waver on this one. Sometimes I agree with them, sometimes I don't. Um, but the Puritans would say that unless you've had something of an emotional experience of shame and regret and mourning over your sin, you have not been converted. Mm-hmm. And so th- this is the, this is the question then that they would raise in their sermons. So they were adequately thinking that when the Puritans were preaching, they were adequately thinking about the believers in their congregation who needed to be discipled, and they were thinking about the people present hearing their sermons who needed to understand how to come to Christ. And so they would they would say, "You need you need to see your sin before the law." You need to mourn your sin, and and in that mourning, come to the gospel. 
So, so is our gospel focus so focused on who we are in Christ and living that out that we're forgetting about the unbelievers? I, that's the question. Yeah, and I think that, that you know this, the question is more poignant now than when we were first considered this series of questions to make these podcasts around. Um, we've recently had the experience of having some unbelievers, new unbelievers. I mean, you may have unbelievers that you don't know about that you're preaching to, or you have some suspicions about or whatever. But you know, brand new, off the street unbelievers in our church uh, a couple of times in the last several weeks, and um, it, it's made me go back and retool on the fly the way that I use my language and the way that I assume what people have already bought and those sorts of things. And it's a, it's really a quite good exercise um, to, is, is there any consideration? Certainly there can be an over-consideration, there can be an accommodation, there can be a starving of the sheep because we're always just so basic on Sunday morning because we anticipate that there's going to be a lot of goats there. Um, where I think that the balance... Um, is that we're intelligible. I think that's 1 Corinthians 14, that, we're, that it's, it's intelligible, um, it's understandable, it's in language that, that, that a person walking off the street can understand. It's not necessarily that it's going to come home, because that's a spiritual work, it's a work by the Spirit, but that it's in language that they can sort of work with. And I think, too, that there is a... Um, you know, say if you've got a PhD in, um, in microbiology... And uh, he's going to talk to a kid that he's just met for the first time who's 10. Um, and, and the kid asks him, um, you know, what kind of work do you do? Uh, the microbiologist, if he's wise, is going to try and figure out how to put a fairly complex thing into language that a 10-year-old who doesn't know all the vocabulary, doesn't know all the jargon, um, doesn't have all the background can get um this is the virtue of the magic school bus series frankly um for kids in terms of science Mm. as someone who has a lot of science background they do a very good job of really carefully thinking through how could you put this in a way that a kid can get the general idea of it Mm. i think that 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 is instructive to us that when somebody just off the street comes in with no background at all do we paint the big picture for them, creation, fall, redemption, glory. Do we, um, do we help them realize, you know, do we, do we, do we, uh, do we help them realize what repentance might look like in life? Um, and, and what faith looks like and the kind of thing that's been, that goes on when you do that, the way that you feel about the things that you've done or the way that you feel about Jesus do we put it in a way that people can really grab onto it? Um, and what I've found is that there's more thought patterns common of unbelievers in the believers in my church than I'd like. Mm. And so I may well be discipling some of the believers in my church, some of the sheep, by trying to think about how would a goat think about this, Right. I'm doing the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by Satan this week. How do you, you know, how do you, how, do, how does that, how, <laughs> how do you get that in a shape that an unbeliever might be able to grab onto and a believer really benefit from? That's hard work. That's really hard work. But I think it's a work that's worth doing. 
It's not an accommodating work. I don't think that Paul accommodated the gospel when he went house to house to Gentiles and he explained everything from A to Z. Acts 17 is not an accommodation of the gospel. Um, Acts 17, when Paul's preaching in Athens, is an, an adaptation of the gospel based on where the audience that he's trying to proclaim to is at. And that's what we're saying in part our preaching should be like. Or perhaps a safer word even would just be explanation of the gospel. Yeah, yeah. We're just explaining the gospel. You know, Jesus used parables to explain the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we miss how much, how e- how effective a story is. Mm-hmm. Um, taking we have us... A- out of the abstract and, and actually putting us into a situation. One of the, um, a church out here that's, that's somewhat influential has, has got a, a curriculum um, that they call the story of God. And uh, it's very, very helpful. It's what under a previous label we would have put in our seminary background or whatever, um, biblical theology or, or redemptive historical thinking. But, but they have very carefully and in a, a very solid doctrinal way um, taught their people to um, to think about the story of God and to think of themselves as involved in the story of God, uh, the story that God is is writing. And, um, and and even to the point of where I've, I've uh, which I think is very, very helpful to think about involvement in the Great Commission as part of being, of playing a role in the story that God is writing, which is fascinating as an idea. Um, but even as repentance, as an act of stop trying to write your own story, um, because that's essentially what we're trying to do. We're trying to make our own happiness, trying to figure it out ourselves, trying to get it done all by ourselves without the need of a savior, without needing the, the, the interjection of a God from outside. Uh, we can get it done. Without going to God for his counsel. Yeah. But instead, I mean, that's, the, that's Philippians 4, don't worry, pray, is when we worry, what we're doing is we're meddling in the affairs of God. We're we're trying to dictate providence by worry, yeah, <laughs> which doesn't which doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess all of that to say that that I think you're right, Sean. I think that the way that that Jesus went to talk with unbelievers is crucial. The way that Paul went to talk with unbelievers is crucial, and that for our preaching to be flavored um, by a recognition and a desire to have unbelievers there. Um, one man has said that that if we preach and teach that way as though there are uh, unbelievers there, that the people who are in our congregation, who, Lord willing, are building relationships with unbelievers, might say to themselves, my unbelieving neighbor could actually get that. I get mm. it, and it's helpful to me. But yeah. my unbelieving neighbor might, might get that. Maybe I will invite them. Um, whereas if we're always in a plane where it, it would seem impossible for an unbeliever to walk in and get anything, then we've got very little hopes that, that our people will heed the advice we're giving them, which is invite your unbelievers to church. Yeah, which which needs which needs to take place. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the only way an unbeliever's can If we in. believe in the ordinary means of grace, it needs to take place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, the um, so thinking about this, thinking about are we, are we adequately considering the goats in our congregation? And that's, that's not, we don't mean by that, are you calling them out on it? Right. Um, although no, no, you're just we, saying those are the, those who are unbelievers right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, are we um, 
are we thinking about the different kinds of unbelievers that we have? Mm-hmm. For example, you might have unbelievers who show up every Sunday. Yeah. You know, these would these, these would tend to be your basically good people. They have no problem being seen in a church. Um, they they think it, they probably think it's a good idea to be in church, and yet they don't believe. Um, in fact, they may well be in church to be seen in church. Oh, certainly, certainly. I mean, that assumption goes right along with that. But then yeah. you've got the other people who uh, we've we've had a couple of these uh, these folks in our church, and I. It's the people that you invite, and they come with you, but then they get the cell phone call. Um, <laughs> you, you know I'm what I'm saying? And they sort of yeah. hang around in the foyer talking on the phone, and they're, they're a little leery. They haven't been to church in a long time. They don't know what this is about. Right. They're, they're a little scared. Um, it's, that sort of, it's that sort of thing, and you want to be, you know, to the person who shows up every week, you want them to see that their righteousness is sin. Because Absolutely. it's a false righteousness. It's not the righteousness of Christ. It's an imperfect righteousness. Right, right. Whereas for these other people who are scared, you want them to see that Christ is welcoming mm-hmm. to the sinner. You know, the, so there's a, but when you look at Jesus' parables, you've got that mix. Mm-hmm. He, talks, he talks to all sorts of people and he talks to them at those different levels. To the Pharisee, it's woe to you, just like John the Baptist. You know, yep. who, who told you to, yeah, who told yeah. you to flee the coming yeah. wrath? Um, whereas the, uh, you know, you've got the house of Simon and the and the woman putting the perfume in her tears and wiping Jesus' feet with with her hair, and and Jesus just lays into Simon, and then he turns turns to the woman and he says, "Go, go in peace." Right, your sins have been forgiven. Yeah, so I, it's like, all Oop! it's all there. Yeah, it's all yeah. part of the gospel, right? But right. we just have to make sure all those different things are part of our gospel. You know, and this reminds me uh, of something that I've been coming to over the last several years. Is um, and and I do think that this is the ordinary means at work in the life of the pastor and in the work of the pastor. Is that we've got to know where people are. We have to know where our people are, and and that takes um, that takes time. It takes hanging around and being with people, not overboard, not kill yourself. But um, I, I have a, a lady in my congregation um, who's been known to say on occasion that she really doubts whether Jesus is the only way to go to heaven. Um, and while she might be as one escaping through the flames, she also may not be. Um, because it, Jesus's claim is not that kind where um, Jesus' claim is not that kind where I can be your savior, but I don't have to be everybody's. It, to believe in Jesus is to believe that he's the only way and not just for you. And, um, and unless you're with people enough, it, whether you're in your home or in social things with them or they're in some kind of group with you or whatever, and you don't get to hear those kinds of things of where they really are from their lips, um, that's a that's that's a problem, and I find this that in general, it's um, it's at least in my case, and that might not be in Sean's case. Um, it's um, the difficulties are with the the older folks and the youngest folks. Um, in that 
some of the youngest folks are going to have gotten maybe some distorted teaching and things because of going to um, a college or been involved in some kind of some kind of a college ministry that was more liberal than the church they're attending now. Um, and some of the oldest folks have been in church their whole lives, and were never really, at least in, in my particular case, they were never really taught doctrine. Hmm. And um, and so there are these wide gaping holes, and um, and and so I, I think that part of this is of this preaching is to realize where are the holes that your people have. Are you praying about them? And are you thinking about how to to wisely apply the gospel to them? Now, see, Matt, this is exactly that is a that's a perfect segue to question nine. Okay, because question nine is the question of discipleship. Mm-hmm. If question eight was, do we consider the do we adequately consider the goats? Question nine is, do we consider the goats too much? And we've all been to churches where they're only concerned with bringing in the lost. Right. And what you're saying is on the flip side of that, there are, there are Christians at all different levels in your congregation. And are you taking the time to consider where they are and figure out what is it that they need mm-hmm. to, to press on to the next level? Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think that, this happens in our circles, um, but it's. I think it was uh, in part a passing fad. Um, I don't, don't personally know of um, of a PCA church, the denomination that Sean and I are part of, um, of a PCA church that that I know of personally that is this way. I have known of some in the past when. Um, say, especially when, say, Willow Creek was doing very, very well and people were modeling their ministry after Willow Creek and that the Sunday was this real light duty, mainly tilted towards unbelievers kind of thing. And we had some churches like that. Um, but I, I'm not aware of any churches like that now. Um, there were also a lot of churches, stuff. Matt, uh, there were also a lot of churches that were trying to be like that. And I think that was one of the one of the the big things that hurt um, our churches rather than working together. You had a lot of smaller churches who, who really came to believe if we can just do what the megachurch does, we can become a megachurch too, and then everything will be okay. And that was, I, I think that was the, one of the biggest lies that the church has bought into of the past two decades. Yeah. I do. Now that you're saying this, I, I do recall um, in the time that I was in the Pittsburgh area, that there was a church that really got enamored with the forty days of purpose kind of stuff. Yeah, and um, and I think that that's a similar vein. Is it's kind of a, you know, the ordinary means from one perspective is very blasé, and this goes all the way back to the founding of this podcast. I don't know, four or five years ago, we started doing this. But ordinary means is not the church of what's happening now, as my one deacon likes to put it. <laughs> um, it it's that's not its point. Its yeah. point is. The way that God has designed this thing called Christianity to work, the way that he wants to convert and sanctify people is through just regular, typical stuff. The word, the prayer, prayer, and the sacraments. And, and those things, both in public services and in private settings, that's how God wants to change people. And so um, I think that sometimes we can get really twisted and tied up with, ooh, we need to be the church of what's happening now. 
um, when it, it, by so doing, uh, we actually, um, even though our theology says otherwise, we make it seem as though we're the ones who can pull this off, see how snappy and wonderful we are. And, um, and, and we're, if you haven't figured that out about Sean and I, that's not, that's not us. If you were to come to our services, they're very, they're robust, they're, they're, uh, good music, there's good preaching, there's feeling, there's emotion, but there's not, um, there's not production. There's not a show. Um, and a lot of times I think that we think that unbelievers need a show, not just a good solid gospel service with good solid gospel preaching. Well, I think the show mentality takes us back to that, that quote from earlier that that's one of the ways that we save people from repentance is if we can just entertain them. Oh yeah. Um, then, you know, they'll come. I mean, if you, you put on a good show, people will come, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not gonna, it, it's not going to get people saved. It's just right. gonna give them that's, something that's a good to do word. on this, a Sunday morning. One of the guys in my church in Pennsylvania, um, we we uh, he worked a lot and I worked a lot. We didn't get to go, get together as much as I really would have liked to have because he was he was very formative in my life in in some ways. But one of the guys in in a lot of ways, I wish he'd been more and I'd been more open to to his counsel when I was there. But one of the things uh, we were out to breakfast one time, and uh, one of the things he said to me is he said, "You know, Matt, it's we were a small church and struggling, and um, you know, concerned that we had enough people there just to keep the doors open and pay the bills and things like that." And he said, he said to me one morning, right? He says, Matt, you know, it's actually not hard to gather a show. There's a whole lot of churches around us that, or there's, it's not hard to gather a crowd. There's a whole lot of churches around us that have managed that have managed that. And that really, really struck me um, that it's actually not hard to gather a crowd. Hmm. But if it, but it, but if a crowd has been gathered by something other than the gospel. And we know that inherently the gospel is this message to some it's the sweetest thing they've ever smelled. It, it's like a, you know, Lewis has some of these things, you know, it's like a rose from another country. Um, but to others, it stinks like a body that's died. And if the flavor of our services, of our ministry, doesn't have that kind of edge to it where we have people that, that hate what we have just said, because it confronts their rebellion and their wickedness. Not because we said it hatefully, but because their Second Corinthians 4 4, the God of this age has blinded them. And they're still in their flesh, dark and dead. Um, if our ministry isn't having that response that it had with Jesus, it had with Paul, where some love us and some hate us, um, it's probably not a gospel ministry. And the temptation, of course, to this question that we're considering right now, and then we should probably go on to the other ones. Well, I think is, you're. I think you're pulling us into question ten. Okay, is if we, we consider the goats too much, we'll pull the punch that the gospel is meant to have. And the first word of the gospel is is the R word. It's repent. And if we're considering the goats too much, and we don't want to offend them, we don't want to bug them, we don't want them to think that we're not loving or whatever. The, the gospel is a command from a king that you're in rebellion against. Who's saying, lay down your weapons of rebellion. Stop trying to write your own story. Won't you let me write your story? 
If, if You're a you, creature of mine. If you surrender, I will take care of you. Right. But, but you have you, to stop trying to control your own life. Yep. You know, and that's, that is, um, you know, we're the captain of our own ships. We believe that. That's, that's the practical gospel of most Americans. We are the captains of our own destiny. We believe that little piece of poetry. So the gospel is very offensive to Americans. And if it doesn't come across as offensive to some degree, and I even acknowledge that in talking to believers, say, this message doesn't bug you a little bit. You probably haven't gotten it yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is question 10 here. Is, yeah. is the gospel part of our gospel? And you'd, you'd mentioned, you just taught on uh, 1 Timothy 1.11, which I think gets to this yeah. point yeah. that you're making. Um, 1 Timothy um, 1.11 just whacked me upside the head several years ago. Um, you're sort of tripping through 1 Timothy. Timothy is, uh, 1 Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus are written to, um, Timothy and Titus were, what I'm going to use, and that's a coded word, but I'll explain it. They were written to revitalization pastors. And so these guys were not guys who went and planted churches. These were guys who went in into a messy situation and helped try to get it healthy again. Okay? So Timothy is going into um, Ephesus, the church, the Ephesian church, right? The one that Paul planted, um, the one they wrote a letter to. So it had gotten messy already, which is a whole lot you could say about that. But anyways, so Timothy's going to Ephesus because things are messy. And he goes in there and Paul's telling him as a sort of trip through First Timothy 1, um, tell him not to teach different doctrines. Don't devote themselves. Very important word. Devote themselves to myth and endless genealogies because that's about speculations and it's not about uh, the stewardship from God that's by faith. And he tells him what the certain life is. Um, and then he starts to comment a little bit about the law down in verse 8. He says, you know, the law is good when he uses it lawfully. Uh, you know, understand this. The law is not laid down for the just because they already want to obey God. They, they want to do the right things. But it's written down for the conviction, if you will, of the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. And then Paul goes into this list like you've seen in other places in Paul's writing, right? For the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, you're thinking First Corinthians, you're thinking Romans 1, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and, and then you get two thunderclaps here that are an utter surprise. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. What? Wait a second. What are you saying, Paul? What are you talking about, Paul? What he's saying is that unholy living flows from, from a lack of sound doctrine. And then, that's the first thunderclap. And this is paralleled in Titus, by the way. If you want to go over and look in Titus and look under sound doctrine, he says the very same thing there. This is why being a church that teaches doctrine, not, not uh, isn't doctrinaire, but teaches doctrine is so important. So, so this immoral living is, accord, is contrary to sound doctrine. And then that sound doctrine... This is the second thunderclap, is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So you have a happy God who's glorious, who's given a gospel to us, a message. Good and news. that gospel is, the way that I picture this, is that it's a hub to the sound doctrine. So sound doctrine is in accordance with the gospel. So think, for example, um, in Galatians 2, when Paul is confronting Peter about Peter pulling back from eating with the, with the uh, Gentiles. 
and and Paul comes in there and he's and and he comes in and the way that we would think about it is general American Christians come in and said, "Hey, you're breaking the rules about about uh, that. You remember the rule is you're now supposed to eat with Gentiles." But that's not the way that Paul comes in. He doesn't say that you're breaking the rule about eating with Gentiles or not eating with Gentiles, as the case may be. He comes in and he says, um, you know what? You're missing the gospel here. And there's an insight here as I see these two passages sort of come together where, where a lot of times when we use the word gospel center, what we're talking about is somebody who preaches grace. They talk about Jesus a lot. They're really enamored with grace. It's a, isn't it a great thing? Boy, I'm so thankful for the cross. True, true enough, but not enough. Because the way that Paul understood the gospel is it was at the center of everything. That all sound doctrine, I think of it as a feedback loop. I wish you could put a diagram up on the website, on the, the blog. But it's like a feedback loop. That sound doctrine flows from the gospel and loops back to the gospel. It's in accordance with the gospel. And so that's the, that's the concept I see in 1 Timothy 11. Is that the gospel is not just um, you're accepted in Christ because of Jesus. That's, that, that, that is a wonderful, glorious truth. But it's not the end of the function of the gospel as it's written down for us in the New Testament. The gospel is the hub of everything. And to be truly gospel-centered, uh, it would have to actually function that way as the hub of our doctrine. As when we find ourselves in sin that we can recognize and say, there's some way that I have not understood the gospel that's causing me that I've not applied the gospel, understood or applied the gospel to an area of my life. And that's why I'm acting in this way. Um, so anyways, that's, that's a very, very dense verse and I've only given you like five minutes on it. But, I, but I think that, um, that we also don't want to make the gospel, this little simple message, a glorious message. And it is a simple message, but it's also a deep and profound and broad and interweaving message that flows through everything else. That's my plea. Which is why everything that we've been asking here for the past four months is so important is, is because if our gospel is not the biblical gospel, mm -hmm. then our hub is broken. Really well put. And, and the wheel's going to fall apart. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. That's a really great way to put it. And really, we could say, honestly, that the picture of the last hundred years of the Christian church has been the wheel falling apart. Hmm. If you look at the... Uh, sometimes people ask me, you know... Um, you know What's the what's the shape of the church in America right now? What's what's going on in the church in America, and what do you think is going to happen? Because there's kind of there's these different currents and undercurrents, and there's all kinds of different things happening. And I say, well, to understand the, the future, you've got to kind of understand the past and what happened beforehand. And one of the things that happened, it, it, and and it has a lot of relevance for now in the situation that is now, is in the when liberal theology began to exert itself. In the United States, so we're talking about like 18, oh, 1888, you have the first liberal professor inaugurated at a conservative school, right? And, um, and, um, 
And when liberal theology began to gain ascendancy in the schools, then you develop this controversy between the fundamentalists and the modernists. And um, it's a historical controversy. You can go read about it wherever you want. But one of the things that the fundamentalists did, which is wonderful, is they stood on the Bible. They stood on the virgin birth and the inspiration of scripture and, and all these wonderful truths that are glorious and good. The miracles happened. Um, you know, um, uh, Jesus was actually physically raised from the dead. Good things. Absolutely good things. But not tied together to the hub of the gospel. And what happened was you get this really ironic thing where you have a bunch of people who believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but do nothing about the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. And so it was a bare doctrine because it wasn't linked to the gospel and what the point of the gospel is, which is not only that we get accepted by with the Father, but that the Great Commission actually comes about and happens and gets fulfilled through us. And so because the, those doctrines were delinked from the gospel, the fundamentalists retreated. Now, I'm not just talking about culture and politics and all that kind of stuff. They certainly retreated from that. But they retreated from advance, seeking to be advancers of the kingdom. They didn't pray that prayer, send workers in the harvest field and, and weren't ready to hear, uh, oh, I might be one of them. And so what you ended up with is not just a retreat from cultural institutions, which we could debate all day, but there was a retreat even from just trying to advance the gospel. It, it, was, a, it, was, a, it was a hide and it was a hide. Let's hold these five doctrines and that'll be great. Aren't we wonderful? Aren't we, aren't we good? But completely derooted from the gospel. Well, and you certainly get that when fundamentalism began to say, you know, one of those doctrines was something like we don't drink. Yeah, and so it, you suddenly your hub is is a false gospel of no alcohol. <laughs> you know, and that it's just not it can't hold it cannot hold the church together. And it actually is an acid against the gospel. Yeah. And it could be anything. I mean, that maybe it could be anything. Essentially, the question but of that was hub, a very typical one. The question of hub is the question of idolatry. You know, what is the what is the one thing that matters? What is the functional center yeah. of a church's of a congregation's ministry? And that functional center of a congregation's ministry is really the functional center of um, of its leadership, of its preachers, and its people. And if your functional center is, if your identity is wrapped up in that we don't do this, um, then, yeah, it becomes the idol. It becomes the center. It becomes the hub. It's what we're known most for. So, so Sad, it, Sadly, we've had a situation here where I think we've talked about this. Both of our churches in the time we've been doing the podcast have gone to, um, have gone to weekly communion. And, um, and when we introduced weekly communion, I can't remember if you did this or not, Sean, but when we introduced weekly communion, our church had always been a grape juice only church. And so we we gave people the liberty to either take wine or grape juice when we went to weekly communion, and um, and even though we gave people the choice and anybody could live out their conscience before God, and I say that every week um, because we really wanted to do that as a leadership. We didn't want to force people to do something that might be against their conscience, even if we thought their conscience was was you know um, misguided, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, there are some people who could not bear with that. And that was a really, really um, sad occasion and day 
that, that couldn't bear with their hub, their most important thing being changed. Mm. Um, and and uh, I think that's always a danger for us. It's always a danger for us to hub something else, to have something else be functionally the hub. So we started this whole thing by asking, is gospel-centered a good thing? And I, I think our answer is yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we just have to make sure it's the right gospel. I, yeah. I, I want to I close out um, this podcast. I have a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, one, one little – I was going to call this question 11. Let's call this 10A. Um, just, just as a side note – um, one more question. Is the Trinity a part of your gospel? Mm. Now, we could possibly do a whole other podcast on that, on this. Could we actually? Because I've been giving the Trinity some thought lately. So that would actually you want to be... Do, okay, so this, this is your preview. Your, yeah. your, our, your preview for, the, for next, next month. Mm-hmm. Um, next month, we're going to talk about is the Trinity... A part of your gospel. It's an it's an interesting question, and this gets into the 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 issue that I mentioned earlier. We're going to talk a little bit about um, songs in the church because I think looking at the songs we sing is mm-hmm. a good way of judging, uh, at least prelimin- preliminarily, uh, how much we're thinking about all three members of the Trinity. But we'll we'll leave that till April, and let's let's go ahead and qu- close with this quote. Um, I think this sums up much of what we've said. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says, Cheap grace is the enemy of the church. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, grace without discipleship, grace without a cross. Hmm. Costly grace is the gospel of the church. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. So when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Mm. Good words. May the Lord richly bless you as you pursue him through his ordinary means.